4 if you want to turn there. If you've ever looked up words in the Strong's Concordance, you see that there's a range of meaning between them because they've often translated one word in Greek or Hebrew into an English word. And uh, depending on how it's translated, it can mean many things. And the way you primarily define it, that's going to impact the way you use it and the meaning to you. Like convenient, that's a word with a range of meanings. Um, usually we say convenient when something is an opportune moment or the timing is good. It fits easily with our plans. It would be convenient to drop by the shops if it's directly on my way home. But it would be inconvenient if it's the opposite direction and I have to go out of my way, then it's not convenient anymore. But the word convenient also means proper or suitable. So something that's proper, it's the right thing to do at that time. That would be a convenient thing, but not in the way that we would typically use it. Um, to make a proper meal with fresh ingredients that, and to eat regularly, that would be convenient as far as that's a suitable, proper thing to do. But it's also nice to have meals that can be made conveniently, right? Those convenient meals that you can quickly throw together, they're good and wholesome and, and they're easy. That's a one you can make quickly. We can also say the same thing about salvation. It's not just what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. So if we look at salvation in the negative sense that God has saved us from hell. He saved us from the power of sin. He's saved us from the powers of darkness. And if we st stop there, we'll just be grateful. Like, okay, but we can forget that and, and not emphasize what we've been saved for, that we've been saved for God, to become more like him, to know him, to serve him, to seek him. He saved us for a relationship to have with him, something to pursue, not just to be grateful that, okay, my future is secure, right? Security is good, but purpose today is also good. So we need to have that balance there, that he's made us part as, as members of, of Christ. We're now part of the church, and he's gifted us all individually to support and encourage to glorify him. If Paul was only saved from sin and death, well, he was still in chains, but because he had a relationship with the living God, he realized he had a purpose in those chains, that those chains weren't going to hinder him from accomplishing what God had promised. Because God said, you will, you will testify for me in Rome. And he knew that. And all along the way, he was testifying. He wasn't waiting to testify until he arrived in Rome. But in chains every day as he uh, was in Caesarea, Jerusalem, on the way, on a ship, he served the Lord. He testified for God. So serving God, it doesn't always seem convenient. It's not easy to do what's right. Our flesh doesn't, doesn't approve of that at times. But it's always convenient in that it's proper and suitable. It's the right thing to do. No matter where God brings us, why don't we pray? Thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are an awesome God, that it's always convenient to worship you and to praise you and to honor you because you are a great and mighty God, the God. You, there is no one but you, Lord. And we thank you for sending us your Son and the Holy Spirit who fills us and causes us and guides us into all truth. We thank you for your word and the things you have to say to each one. May we be receptive and may your word find good soil in our hearts. 
that it might be fruitful and bring honor and glory to your name. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, my friends here today, and may you minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We've arrived at Acts chapter 24. After Paul's been arrested during a disturbance in Jerusalem due to no fault of his own, for his personal safety, he was transferred out of Jerusalem to Caesarea uh, by Claudius Lysias. It was a port city and capital of Judea, and Felix was the governor or procurator at that time. His accusers in Jerusalem were told, if you want to press formal charges against Paul, you'll have to do so in Caesarea. And um, he, they would have to appear before Felix, the governor. And his name was Marcus Antonius Felix, an interesting bio because he was a Greek freedman, which means at one point he was a slave. Uh, he was the younger brother of Marcus Antonius Paulus, who served as secretary of the treasury under Emperor Claudius. So it was a very good connection to have and likely the means by which he was made free of slavery. Once in power, the conduct of Felix is described by historians as tyrannical, corrupt, base, and cruel. At the point where Paul is appearing before him, he had, he had, he had already married once and divorced his wife to marry a, a different wife, uh, Drusilla of Judea, who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, Agrippa I. So we arrive at Acts 24, verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Five days after uh, Paul is transported to Caesarea, the high priest Ananias, so the high priest himself, he makes the trip. The elders, this professional orator, I wonder if he's being paid by the word, Tertullus appears. They have little of substance to really accuse Paul of, and so they've got some showy speaker who's going to dazzle, right? He's going to bring these charges against Paul and when called to speak, Tertullus, he begins this accusation with a, he prefaces it with a load of flattery. Uh, and it's, what he says, it's really rich coming from someone representing the Jews because Felix did not have such a shining reputation among them. He, he credits most noble Felix for peace and prosperity through his foresight. From what I've read, there was not a noble bone in the body of Felix. He was later accused of using a supposed conflict between the Jews and the Syrians to murder and plunder people to enrich himself. And he actually was removed from office because of this. Uh, it's, it's said that his brother, using his connections, got him to wriggle off the hook before Caesar Nero. So anyhow, Felix is not a great guy, but he's like, not to be tedious any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words. It would be a good thing if we would see flattery as tedious, very tedious. That word means tiresome, dull, uninspired. When I think of flattery, it may be a strange connection, but I think of gas. Hmm. Do you know that propane and natural gas are odorless? 
that very distinctive smell when you're filling a gas bottle or you have gas, a little gas leak in your house, that is an additive. That has been placed there for safety so that you can recognize that very distinct foul smell and say, wow, there must be a gas leak somewhere because that's potentially deadly. If you didn't know, if you couldn't smell it, you would light a match or turn on the stove and the whole place could blow up or you could be asphyxiated by it. So those smells have been added so that you recognize it. We're like, whoa, propane. WD-40, same thing. It was made and uh, manufactured in San Diego, and I did a job at the plant, and I was shown uh, how they make it. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's naturally odorless, but there's a food processing facility that makes uh, scent for food, like the food that you buy. It's actually an additive that they put in so that it smells like strawberries or it smells like bananas. It really doesn't. But they put that in there so it smells nice. Well, WD-40, like it or hate it, it has a very unique smell, a very distinct smell, where you smell it once, you're like, that smells like WD-40. So it has a distinctive smell. Would it be that flattery, does it have a distinct smell to you? Are you sensitive to it? It would be good for us to be sensitive to it so we don't seek it for ourselves and we don't employ it on others. Because there's a difference between flattery and a compliment. A compliment's a polite way to acknowledge or to encourage others. Flattery is false praise with the aim to influence others to gain advantage for self. So it's really motive. That's the difference between flattery and a compliment. So compliment is speaking the truth for the benefit of the other, where flattery, it's, a, it's basically a dressed-up lie to influence others for your gain. David wrote in Psalm 5, 8, 9, he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteous, righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. How would an open tomb smell? Pretty foul. David was very sensitive to the sound, the smell of flattery. He's like, man, there's just death in there. It's an indication of something rotting inside. And so it's an indication of that sin that's within us. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, it says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We see Tertullus kissing up to Felix to try to get advantage. He continues in Acts 24, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Tertullus, he launches into this accusation with very strong language. He calls Paul a plague a creator dissension among all Jews throughout the world. This is a pretty big claim. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's trying to push these buttons on Felix that he would have been sensitive to, like law and order. 
The Romans were very keen on keeping order, getting power and maintaining power, keeping it. If there was a rioter, if there was someone who was stirring up dissension, they would target that person uh, viciously. They would make an example with that one. And so he says, oh, he's a plague. He's creating dissension everywhere among all the Jews. And then he, uh, so he says this sect, which is like a cult splinter group. The word is heresy. It's this offshoot of the real thing. And he's the ringleader. He's the one starting all this trouble everywhere. And he doesn't mention Jesus' name, but he mentions Nazareth, which had a very bad reputation, a relatively obscure place. And then he says he was attempting to profane or to desecrate the temple though he doesn't provide any evidence or particulars. The initial charge, if you remember, when he was in the temple, they said he's preaching against the Jews, against this temple, and he's he is defiling this place or polluting the place by bringing in Gentiles. That was the original. Now he's saying he went to desecrate it, which means to destroy it. Like he wanted to physically break it down in some way, tear it apart. So now he's really ramping up his accusation beyond what it ever was before. And do you like how he describes how they, how Lysias came upon them with great violence to take him away? He's like, hey, we would have judged him in-house. We were judging him according to our law, not saying that they were beating him to death. And had, had Lysias not arrived, they would have beat him to death. They were not going to judge him according to their law. It was a mob. But he's putting it out there in such a way that he's saying, oh yeah, we were going to judge him, it was all fine, but then he was taken off our hands with great violence. And so now here we are because we have to be, he said, we have to appear before you and, and just talk to Paul. He'll, you'll see that when you talk to him, it'll be clear that everything we're saying is true. And I can hear all the Pharisees, here, here, you know, yes. Listen to this, this is true. This shows, remember how he started with flattery? He doesn't have a problem lying because flattery is a lie. So if you're willing to to flatter and to kiss up to people, well, you're going to be fine with distorting, stretching, and lying when it comes to the truth. Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they found me in the temple, neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. After Tertullus finished, Paul's given the nod to give his defense. He seems completely at ease and sincere in the things that he says. He's, I'm cheerful to answer to myself. I'm happy to speak before you today. I acknowledge your experience, uh, having been a ruler over the, over Judea for a while. You're aware of the customs and the culture. I don't have to explain these things to you. And he says, it's only been 12 days since I returned to Jerusalem to worship. And he'd been in Caesarea, as we read in the passage, five days. Remember, he was arrested in the temple, held overnight, went before the Sanhedrin. Then he spent two more days in the barracks before by night coming. So that's three other nights. So he's saying, I was not in Jerusalem long enough to organize a riot. 
I was not disputing. They didn't even see me, like, arguing with anyone. In the synagogue, in the temple, and they can't prove anything. They don't have any evidence that I've done anything that they're saying. Like modern courts today, the burden of proof, it rests upon the plaintiff. The plaintiff needs to supply the proof and the evidence, not the defendant. So the, the burden of proof is not on Paul to prove his innocence. He, he is going to respond to the allegations against him or the evidence, but they submitted none, just words. Verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I like he says, there's nothing, they have no evidence, but I have a confession to make. And I'm sure people are like, huh? He says, I'll confess one thing. I am a member of that, that way they call a sect. It's not a sect. It's actually the logical end result of worshiping God according to the scripture and following the law because the law was like a schoolmaster which led me to Christ. It was his knowledge of the law and his understanding of it that caused him to realize Jesus had fulfilled the law. So he's not a member of a sect or some cult. In the letter to his into the Galatians, Paul described the law as that tutor. Just like a, a, a tutor leads a student by the hand to knowledge and understanding, so God's law did for him. And he says, I have faith in God, just like them. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And it's belief in this future judgment that motivated Paul to have a clear conscience toward God and people. Notice that he doesn't say before God. It's much more active. See, if I said I have a clear conscience before God, it's very passive. But he says, I have a clear conscience toward God. It's a bit different. He, he desired his intentions when he lived his life was to live in a way towards God that pleased him and towards men that he was not causing him to stumble or to sin. And he had this clear conscience. This offense. The scriptures teach that ignoring an offense is, or ignoring offense is an offense. That is a sin before God. We can't be in good standing with God when we are at odds with our brethren. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about what was written in the law and the and how his teachings trumped the law. If you could please turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, we'll see that I, I would have loved to have been there when Jesus was giving this address, because he's, he's referencing the scripture and he's saying, this is what it was written, but I say to you, and the connections that he made must have been Earth-shattering, mind-blowing. People were just like, wow. No one has ever taught like this. Matthew 5, 21. And I, I say the whole little paragraph so we have the context. 
You have heard it said that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I think it's probably self-evident that we've all been offended or angry about something someone said or did. And, and, and it wasn't necessarily sinful, the thing that angered us. It's just something I didn't like. Like, I don't like the way you said that. Was it a sin, the way that they said it? I don't know. Probably not. But there was something in me that it stirred up, right? He says, therefore, and we, he, he prefaces it by saying, you shall not murder. That's what the law says. Don't kill people. But I say to you, if you're, if, if you realize that someone's offended by you, then you should leave your gift at the altar. Now, they've traveled a long way with this gift, this sheep or this ox, this goat, and they've gone all the way to Jerusalem and there remember, like, oh, you know what? I'm at odds with this person. There's an offense there then leave your gift at the altar. And it's like, but wait a second, it's commanded in the law to offer this gift, right? That's breaking the law. No, no, this is the important thing. God wants us to be in agreement with one another, that we wouldn't be at odds, right? That's what he's telling these people. Be reconciled to your brother first. You can't cover up being at odds with the believer by worshiping God. It doesn't fix that problem. So be reconciled. Have a renewal of friendship. Exchange that bitterness with love. That word reconciled in the Greek means to change thoroughly. Change the way you're thinking towards that person. Change the way you're behaving. That's what God calls us to do. Later in the Gospels, Jesus taught, Woe to them who offend my little ones. And then he says, if your, if your hand, if your foot offends you, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven maimed than to go uh, whole into hellfire. And then he talks about sheep, where the shepherd will leave the 99 to go after the one sheep. It actually may not be the part where he says 99, but the shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he rejoices. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He goes after the lost sheep, and he rejoices over that sheep. On the heels of saying this, Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. This shows and emphasizes how important it is to walk in unity, to walk in love with one another, Reconciliation and restoration of friendship is very important before God. That we'd have a clear conscience toward him and a clear conscience towards another. If there's someone that you're not rejoicing over, then there may be reconciliation required. God just doesn't want us to be civil. He's not interested, well, okay, there's offense, but at least you brought that offering, so we're good. He's like, no. Be reconciled. Be without offense toward God and also towards men. 
Paul continues his defense in Acts 24, 17. Now, after many day, years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. He explains, I've been away from Jerusalem. I came back to worship and to bring alms, to bring a financial gift to bless the Jews in Jerusalem. And while I was in the temple, being ceremonially clean, I was recognized from Jews from Asia. These Jews from Asia recognized me. They cried out, and uh, they're not even present here today. If there's a problem, they ought to be here giving this account. And then he invites those of the Sanhedrin. He says, on the record, why don't you guys say exactly what I've done wrong? Except for that one time where I know some were offended when I said, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Remember what they said, the Pharisees? They're like, oh, if an angel's talking to him, we, ha- we see no fault in him. So they had actually, he brings up their words where they had justified him. And they said, there's no problem with this guy. And they had had a big fight. It wasn't Paul who was fighting. So he masterfully brought to light their own words, which contradicted the accusation they made before Felix. He says, say it for the record, what I've done wrong. Felix is pretty savvy. Verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told them not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Felix was not, in, uh, he wasn't ignorant of Christianity. He knew in itself it was no cause for alarm. As Tertullus insinuated, the church had been long established in Jerusalem, uh, well over 20 years by this point, and his wife Drusilla was a Jew. So he had an accurate, a fairly accurate knowledge of the way, and he wasn't going to be panicking because of the insinuations that Tertullus suggested. He understood the nuances between the Orthodox Jews and the Jewish Christians. And he judged in Paul's case in a very political way. He delayed a formal decision until Lysias, the commander, arrives, though there is never any evidence he ever sent for him. He knew probably that he was never going to show up, and he just put it off. He would satisfy the religious leaders by keeping Paul bound. At the same time, he would give Paul great freedom, probably greater freedoms than other prisoners would have because he allowed him to stay stay in the capital in Caesarea, that he could receive visitors whenever he wanted. He um, he, He knew that Paul had done nothing wrong, but it was politically expedient for him to remain prisoned. I don't think Felix cared for justice, but he knew how to use law and power for his advantage. This unnecessary delay of justice was unjust, wasn't it? He had the power to release him based upon the lack of evidence that was brought before him in this case. He could have just dismissed it and said, you know, this case is thrown out. There's nothing here. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. 
Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. These are Proverbs we should take to heart. It's always convenient and right to do what's good when it's in the power of our hand to do so. There's a lot in our lives and in this world that we don't have power over, right? There may be a situation, there are tons of situations that are completely out of our control. But God, by His grace, has given you the power to do good. And so when it's in your power to do good, we ought to do it, not to delay it when it suits us. It's kind of like someone's loaned me a tool. I've been lazy and I haven't used the tool, but now they really need that tool back. And say, hey, do you have that, that tool that I loaned you? And I'm like, and I have it. I'm like, oh man, I forgot it at the shop. I'll get that back to you next week. Okay, oh, it's put me in a tight spot. Okay, all right. I really needed it back now, but I've got it because I still want to get my job done. That would be wrong. So you need to return it. He's asked for it, right? It's in the, it's in my power to do good and to help this person. So I ought to. Doing good may not be easy or painless or what we would call convenient, but it's always proper. It was certainly not convenient for Jesus to be born of Mary in Bethlehem, to be raised in Nazareth, to have these disciples that he called follow him. That was not convenient. That was a lot of work. He didn't withhold good of obeying his heavenly Father. And he went to the cross. Nothing convenient about that. But it was the right thing. Felix, who sat on the judgment seat, God will judge him for delaying this justice, for just putting off, and we'll see why. His motives are actually explained to us. He secretly hoped that Paul would grease his palm a bit with a bribe so that he could let it go and make this whole charade just go away. Verse 24, after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. After a while, it seems Felix had left. He returned, and he's like, hey, you know, my wife's Jewish. She'd get a kick out of this guy. Let's bring Paul out. Let's let's talk to him about the way. Talk about the faith in Christ. And I, I expect Paul went into great detail about the identity of the one true God, how sin came into the world, uh, the, how it brought death and these eternal consequences, and how God promised to send a Messiah, and how the, the word spoken through the prophets it, it proved that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and how Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the dead. And these things could not be spoken against. There was, there was huge evidence to prove their truth. And then it says, well, we see Tertullus flattering Felix, but what does Paul do? It says he reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Paul had a clear conscience toward God. Felix did not. 
He did not have a clear conscience toward God. The word of God pierced his heart. It troubled his conscience. He was not comfortable talking about these things. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. It says he trembled. He was afraid. Instead of admitting his need for forgiveness and to repent, he dismissed Paul and he said, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. When it's convenient for me, I'll let you know. These reasonings that filled Felix with fear and wanting to avoid the conversation, those same arguments, those same reasonings, they have filled others with brokenness and a desperation for forgiveness to seek God and to humble self before God. We never know how the word of God is going to impact a life. Fear and trembling seems a very reasonable response when you have a uh, a burdened conscience. It seems repentance and faith in Christ for Felix was never convenient. When is it convenient to repent and to walk righteously? Is that ever convenient as far as the easy way? That's the way I was heading anyway. It's right on my way to to walk in righteousness. No way. It's totally out of our way. It's not part of our plans. We have a very linear plan of like, I want to do this. And it's like, but this is the righteous way. This is the way God's leading me. And Oh, that's not convenient. This was not the last time Felix conversed with Paul. In fact, it says he sent for him more often. So they were ha- he was happy to shoot the breeze with Paul. He's an educated man. He could speak Greek and Hebrew. They could talk about things. And it says he sent for him more and more often. If you're just watching it, you're like, man, he re- he's really getting closer to God. He-, he really has a heart to learn about the things of God. You might think, wow, he's maybe getting close to salvation. But in fact, he was quite hardened against it. We never see that he repented, that he He received Christ and trusted in him. And he's like, man, Pastor Paul's in there all the time. He must be, you know, a real seeker. No, he just wanted money. He wanted a bribe to let Paul go. Matthew Henry wrote this. Many lose all the benefits of their convictions for want of striking while the iron is hot. By dropping his convictions now, he lost them forever and himself with them. In the affairs of our souls, delays are dangerous. The matter is adjourned to some more convenient season, and then convictions cool and wear off. The present season is, without doubt, the most convenient season. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When Paul first spoke to Felix, his heart was touched. He was troubled. There was something in him that was stirred by what Paul said. I like the term that, or or the picture that Matthew Henry paints here about striking while the iron is hot. A blacksmith um, will take metal like like steel or iron and heat it up, getting it red hot to 650 or 1370 Celsius, pretty hot. Uh, And when it's red hot, he's able to shape it. It's only when it's red hot that he can bend it and take a hammer and pound it flat. 
and to make it into the object that he wants, that, that he has in his mind, that this is the purpose for this steel or this iron. It's, it, it's a pretty cool trick to heat metal until it glows, right? Maybe it's just a guy thing. You know, when, when I'd get like a smack your finger with a, a hammer and get that pressure, that blood blister under the nail, very painful. Well, if you get that bobby pin red hot and you just touch it on there, it melts right through the, the, uh, I don't want to gross anyone out. It melts, it melts, I'll just say it anyway though. It melts right through the fingernail and it relieves the pressure. And it's like, woo, okay. So if you don't have the little drill bit, wow, that's great. So it's, it's actually painless to do that because you're not touching your flesh, right? It's just melting through the nail. Now, wouldn't it be nice if you had this big bellows, you got the fire going, and you're cranking it up, and man, that metal's red hot. And you're like, ooh, it's so red. It's white hot. But then you stop pumping the bellows, you leave the steel there, you don't go to work on it. Well, has it changed? Is it going to be a horseshoe or an iron gate? Anything of use? No, all it did was get hot. But it hasn't been changed. He didn't take the opportunity to strike when the iron was hot, when it was ready, when there was conviction in its heat and in that moment to strike quickly. Because once it's cold, you can strike on it all you want. It's not going to bend. It's not going to move. No change. When God brings conviction to our hearts, it's we who need to act quickly as the Spirit guides us. Nobody can do that for you. It is not my job to be the blacksmith in your life. I am not the hammer at all. It's not your job to hammer other people, thinking that by your persuasive words, you're going to change their hearts. Oh, no. God says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer? that breaks the rock in pieces. God's word is that fire. God's word is like that hammer. It breaks stony hearts. It can shape and transform lives. He's the one who does that work. Paul was the one faithful to hold forth the word of God. The word of God and the Holy Spirit was going to work convicting him, Felix, but it was Felix who needed to take action on that. Paul couldn't do that in Felix's heart, could he? I can't do that in yours, and you can't do that in mine. So may we do our part faithfully. It's interesting, like God's word, it is like that hammer, it is like that fire, that hammer that can break the hardest stone, yet a man is able to harden his heart to a point it is stronger than Damascus steel, the most tempered samurai blade we can harden our hearts. We see that with Pharaoh, right? That he hardened his heart and he hardened his heart and he, he would not respond. And by the end, he couldn't soften his heart. So after years passed, Portius Festus, he replaces Felix. Instead of commuting Paul's sentence to time served, that's something people like to do at the end of their, um, at the end of their time in office. They'll grant clemency to a few people. They'll, you know, it's, it's again, beneficial for their future to say, oh, yeah, I'll let that guy because that's a favor for him and that'll give me a good job moving forward. 
you know, some political stuff. And that's what he does, except he leaves him bound because he wanted to do a favor for the Jews. So it was politically expedient, again, to keep Paul in chains, though he had done nothing wrong. Felix's salvation, it hung in the balance, but he chose to procrastinate until a convenient time. Now, I'll ask you this. Who wants God to procrastinate when you need salvation? When you need help, do you want God to procrastinate? Oh, I'll wait till that's convenient for me. Of course not. We're like, when I say, save me, it's pretty like right now, like not in a week from now, like I need it now. I need deliverance now. God is able to do that. Paul was innocent of crimes against Rome, but no man is innocent of crimes against God. And we've all offended men. Could you please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 8 here. It's pretty amazing that unlike Paul, like Paul hadn't done anything wrong, but we don't deserve to see the light of day. We deserve to be in prisons of chains and darkness forever because of our sin. But God has provided this abundant grace for us, this forgiveness that we can have through repenting and trusting in him. In context, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's reasoning with the Corinthians, how we must all appear, so in the previous chapter, how we all have to appear before the judgment seat of God. Knowing this, we seek to be well-pleasing to God, right? If God's going to be judging you, you want to do the things that please him. And as believers in Christ, we can face judgment, death, and eternity cheerfully, knowing that Jesus has paid our, our fine by his sin. He has atoned for our sins with his blood, and our eternal entrance to glory is secure through him, through the gospel, right? So we don't have to be worried about that. We can rejoice knowing that death is the way that God will usher us into glory. Paul was guided not by laws, but by the love and grace of God shown him that he had received. He had been forgiven. He had been, God had been merciful to him. God had shown compassion on him. So he was loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate towards others, right? So it was the love of Christ that constrained him to do what he did. Jesus died for us, so we live for him. That's how he puts it out there. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So when is the convenient time? Now, today. When is it a convenient and acceptable time to receive God's grace and to extend it to others? Now, today. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. It's time to strike when the iron is hot. It's time when, when God prompts us to respond to him. There's a book I, I really like called The Pastor's Sketches by Ichabod Spencer. And he was an old preacher, a pastor in, in New York a, a century or two ago. And he talked about this one girl that 
it was his practice to walk with a family on the way to church and with the permission of the father it was definitely a different time with the permission of the father he would talk with the girl and they would they would kind of walk behind or walk up ahead and he would converse about how she was going spiritually what what she was any questions she had you know asking her about the catechism and and uh she was very convicted one time this one girl and uh she she wasn't sure about what she should do and she felt like it was the wrong thing to do and and so he's like well and he told her he directed her to the word and and uh but he said the next time he saw her the conviction was completely gone because she had talked to other people kind of sought their opinions and was very carefree was never under conviction again and he just says man what a bummer that she didn't make that choice to honor god then but instead when she talked to other believers, she just said, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But she didn't go to the Word. She lost that sense of conviction. And so God's Word, He has given us the truth. And His Spirit, we trust in Him for salvation. We can trust His guidance in our decisions. And when you have a check in your spirit, when you feel like something's the right thing to do, but you just don't feel like doing it, strike while the iron is hot. Let's respond obediently to God's Word. It will never be convenient, like easy, or comfortable when it's time to repent, to renew friendship, to do good. But those are always convenient, suitable, and proper because they're pleasing to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your word, that your word is like that fire that burns within us. It is that hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And Lord, forgive us when when we've tried to be that hammer. And forgive us, Lord, when we haven't responded when the iron was hot, when when you spoke to us and, and we explained it away and we just decided we weren't interested in that. Lord, I pray that you would show us our desperate need for forgiveness, for salvation, for your mercy and your grace, that we would respond humbly and obediently to you. I thank you for the example of Paul, Lord. He has these false charges laid against him. He's being uh, held captive, and yet he is cheerful to answer because he stands before you. He has a, a, a he had a man, Felix, who was using him, who wanted a bribe from him, and who withheld justice from him, but still he remains steadfast and true. And Lord, whatever situation we find ourselves in, the uh, wickedness of the world or, or the how our own heart tends to stray, Lord, draw us to yourself. And thank you that where where you are, we can be, that we can be in your presence, that we can enjoy fellowship with you and a relationship that's ongoing and growing. And Lord, I pray that you would minister to each heart here today, that you would bring your comfort, you would bring wisdom and understanding that we walk in the way that pleases you in Jesus' name. Amen.